Welcome to The Burning Word, a podcast that's inviting you to return to the Word and encounter God again. So this is our first episode, the launch episode. And what I want to do is set the stage here, really give you an invitation into where we're going and why this podcast exists. But before I do, I just want to invite you that if this podcast resonates, if this connects at all, we'd love to have you take the next step by going to our website, www.burningwordpodcast.com. And there you're going to find more content, studies that are available for download, and a lot more resources to help you. If we're actually going to return to the Word, we're going to need help and we're going to need each other. So that's why I'd love to invite you to check out what's available on our website, burningwordpodcast.com. Now, without further ado, let's dive in. Welcome to The Burning Word. I'm your host, John Perrine, and this episode, our first episode, I want to begin with a problem. And the problem is this. We don't know what to do with our Bibles. How many times have you sat down, flipped open the page, read a section, closed the book, and thought, what next? How many times have you meandered over to a new section of the Bible only to be bewildered by what you encounter? Or how many times have you sat through a small group, opened up to one of the epistles, I feel like it's always James or Ephesians for some reason, and then sat awkwardly in silence as someone asked, so uh, what do you think of the passage? This is because I believe we've been given a script. Perhaps the script was handed to you in Sunday school. Or perhaps it was given to you by a sincere youth pastor. Perhaps you've heard this script repeated to you on Sundays from the pulpit or on the airwaves from your favorite Christian speaker. Simply put, the script goes like this. Good Christians read their Bibles for 15 minutes a day. In fact, I have this distinct memory of the first time I was handed this script. At the tender age of nine, my family decided to spend a week in the summer at a Christian family camp. Now, am I alone here, or does anyone else have random memories such as these? Here, at this family camp, I distinctly remember the children's counselor, who, of course, to us nine-year-olds, was deeply admired, even though he couldn't have been more than 18. This children's counselor asks all of us in his group, how many of you read the Bible? Now, I proudly lifted my hand. As the son of a pastor myself, I had certainly read the Bible. Yet, as I looked around, I was shocked to see that in our little group of eight, it was only me and, of course, one other overeager girl who were brave enough to raise our hands. Yet the counselor didn't stop there. He would press in. But how many of you read your Bible every day? Every day? I mean, as a nine-year-old, I barely bathed every day. I barely ate vegetables every day. And this camp counselor wanted to know if I had the commitment and discipline to open up and read one of the oldest and most intricate books humanity has for 15 minutes a day. Even as an overachieving pastor's kid, I couldn't do it. Neither, apparently, did my other overeager yet honest friend whose hand now also slowly slid down. However, the counselor couldn't help himself. I remember him clear as day, looking at all of us and saying, 
It's really important, if you love Jesus, that you read God's word every day. That's the only way to truly love him. It's amazing how clearly I remember the words of that 18-year-old camp counselor all the way to this day. Yet it wasn't this 18-year-old's fault. This script was everywhere. The script is everywhere. Just read your Bible for 15 minutes every day and somehow something will happen. But have we really explored the potential downside of this script? I mean, slow down and consider the real danger here. There are only so many times we can pick up our Bible at random and be moved by what we read. There are only so many times we can circle our favorite Psalms or favorite passages of Paul before we begin to wonder why the Bible isn't connecting to our life. There's only so many bad small groups we can sit in before we start asking, is there anything else I could possibly be doing with my time? Here's the heart of the problem, the growing risk we all feel if we were to be brutally honest with ourselves. If we give up on our Bibles, eventually it will be hard not to give up on God. I mean, just look around. Recently, I saw a Barna study. In the year 2000, 45% of Americans considered themselves practicing Christians. Now, just 20 years later, in the year 2020, that number is down to just 25%. From 45% to 25% who now consider themselves practicing Christians. We are truly facing a generational crisis. And if we don't know what to do with the Bible, what makes us think we will be able to hold on to God? I've sat there across from friend after friend who tells a similar tale. The pressures of Christianity from their early youth, the growing disillusionment with their quiet time, until eventually Christianity is this oppressive weight they feel the need to replace. Yet surely the Bible itself is not to blame. So who sold us this script then? That reading the Bible for 15 minutes would somehow grant us access to its power. Well, if we were to take much longer time than I'm going to do here, I would suggest that our current cultural moment has put a lot of weight on the Enlightenment and scientific method. We really believe in science. It's observable. It's data-driven. It's scientific, after all. We are comforted when new studies come out confirming new theories, though, of course, we tend to ignore how it was science who had told us the previous theory was correct in the first place. So culture then, secular culture, continues to put this increasing pressure on Christians to give culture answers about the science of what they believe derived from the Bible. Unfortunately, many Christians have been all too happy to comply. The result has been the overwhelming impression among everyday Christians that the Bible is primarily to be used as a textbook, a sort of handbook to theological answers, a reference source to check for your scientific questions a one-two-three field guide to answering the needs of your everyday faith. Armed with the image of a textbook and a script that every Christian should dutifully read their Bible for 15 minutes every day, your run-of-the-mill, everyday Christian believes that if you want to find out more about heaven, the end times, how to be filled with the Holy Spirit, or whether or not to baptize your baby, you should open your Bible, study it, and there you will discover the answer. In fact, one scholar described this as the Sausage Grinder 3000 approach. Simply take your question, 
along with any other bibs and bobs, questions, materials, raw data from faith, enter it in and out from your Bible will come the sausage of systematic doctrine ready to be believed. Except, of course, that anyone who's ever tried this approach finds the Bible to be far more complex and far less interested in simply spitting out answers to the questions we're asking today. Try to use the Sausage Grinder 3000 for 15 minutes a day from random passages, and you start to realize the real wear and tear required to squeeze Bible passages down into consumable sausage links. The meat starts to taste wrong as you try to figure out, is this telling me where I'm going to go when I die? Is this giving me three steps towards a deeper prayer life? Strangely, the Bible seems to be saying much less about things we want answers to, like questions of the afterlife or speaking in tongues or sexual orientation, and much more about other things that we don't find that relevant or comfortable with our current cultural moment. Things like the kingdom of heaven, promises about lineage and land, or even a radical willingness of someone to lay down their life for another. This is because the Bible reads far less like a textbook and far more like a drama, filled with stories, poems, songs, sweeping proclamations of judgment, followed by even more sweeping proclamations of redemption and grace. It's far less a book of answers and far more a book of questions. Questions of us as people before God, questioning who we will be and who we will become in light of who God is. So this is the emerging heartbeat behind this podcast, because we truly do have a problem. Our current cultural moment has told us that the Bible is a textbook to read for answers, when in fact it's nothing of the sort. It's a fully orbed drama that we're meant to get swept up into. Perhaps your church background has handed you a script, just read your Bible dutifully to be a good Christian, when that's not even close to being enough of what you truly need. If we are to actually recover and sustain faith in our current cultural moment, we need far more than just a quiet time. We need a burning word that will speak to the very burning questions of our heart and offer us an encounter with the living God. You thought there was something wrong with your Bible, but there isn't. You just needed a guide. So if we're to have any hope of dropping the script, that just reading the Bible's enough, and moving beyond the picture of the Bible as a textbook, what's it going to take? How do we recover the Bible as a burning word in our 21st century life? And what could I possibly offer to you as a guide that would open up the Bible as a burning word again. So for any who don't know me, I've been a pastor the last seven years, I've worked through seminary, I'm now working on my doctorate at Durham University. And over these years, one of the key driving questions to me has been how do we recover the scriptures? How do we open them up to let them fully speak? And as I've been on this search, there are three key approaches to the text that I've found have consistently unearthed the Bible as the fully orb drama it was intended to be. So if you've connected to a sermon, perhaps, or there is that one speaker who just seems to really move you when they open up the scriptures, it's probably because they have moved away from the Bible as a sausage grinder for theological answers and instead have offered you at least one of these three approaches, or maybe all three together. 
So before we begin, I kind of want to invite you behind the scenes to this growing consensus among evangelical and liberal scholars alike on the best way to hear the Bible speak, the best way for the Bible to actually transform our lives. So what are these three approaches? The first has a fancy title, the sociocultural approach. Now, I realize that can sound like a fancy academic term, but quite simply, all it means is this. The Bible, though the word of God, was written by real people to real contexts in history, filled with real cultures, societies, and relationships. That might sound surprisingly obvious for how fancy the term is, but consider this. The first insight we must consider when approaching the Bible is that it was not in fact written to 21st century Americans who drive cars, order Starbucks, eat cheeseburgers, and look at their phones. It was written to a very different and ancient world, one filled with kings and priests, agriculture and enemies, angels and demons, local deities and family clans. This means that like a high schooler, picking up Shakespeare for the first time, many texts will surprise us, not only with the words, but with the cultures that are unique from our own. This means that unfortunately it's going to take some work to understand why, say, the Capulets and the Montagues are fighting. Why it wasn't strange for teenagers to be committing themselves in marriage in Shakespeare's day. And why biting one's thumb is a great enough offense to consider dueling. Yet, if we're struck by how strangely different the biblical culture is to our own, we soon discover upon closer examination that the biblical world has many deep parallels to our own. In fact, the social and cultural questions the Bible was addressing become surprisingly relevant when transposed to a contemporary key. I remember the first time I saw Baz Luhrmann's Romeo and Juliet as a teenager. And for some reason, when Leonardo DiCaprio was quoting Shakespeare but driving fast cars and waving guns instead of swords at Tibulus, Shakespeare's intricate language came alive. Or like the first time I listened to Lin-Manuel Miranda's Hamilton, this moment where I realized that even an orphaned immigrant fighting to make a difference in the world of the American Revolution spoke as much to his day as it does to our own. The Bible is no different. The ancient society and culture of the text has incredible power in what the scriptures had to say, yet it holds even more power when transposed to address our culture today. Yet we will need to do the work first to understand the Bible's culture hear what it said and why it mattered, ponder its significance as we open up the news, and then, even more than Shakespeare or Hamilton, allow it to actually direct our steps for engaging our culture today. So this is the potential of the burning word if we will but do the work of going deeper in it. And this is the first approach that we're going to be modeling and offering through this podcast to recover and hear God's word speak to us today. The second approach is connected to the first. It's the literary approach. On first glance, you can see how this approach might be connected. If the Bible holds vast treasure stores waiting to be opened to us in its culture, then surely the Bible is also a literary masterpiece whose words themselves, like the greatest pieces of literature, weave together a tapestry of meaning, both rich in intricacy and moving in beauty. Yet, surprisingly, few of us were ever taught to read our Bibles as a piece of literature. 
In fact, the past 300 years, even the scholarly academy was too busy asking scientific questions of the Bible, like when the flood would have happened, or where the bones of Abraham are buried, or how old exactly the Bible says the earth is, to notice that all of the Bible is being offered to us as literature. Herein has been our problem. We've tried to simply flip open the pages of the Bible and discover some exciting answers or direction. Yet to do this is like flipping open a tale of two cities, hoping to somehow discover the wonder of Dickens' writing in a simple sentence. It might work once or twice, but you would be horribly confused. Or perhaps a more contemporary example. Imagine a family member who has never seen a Marvel movie attempting to join you, a devoted fan, on your next outing to the newest Marvel installment. Except the problem is even worse than that. They've missed the first 30 minutes of the movie as it's playing in the theater. Not only would they be confused about what was happening to the hero, or why that person who seemed good had actually turned bad, but now probably was good again, but they would be even more lost on all of the intricate backstory, the characters they should have already met, the themes that had already been established, and the cliffhanger that will come at the end of the movie to set up the following sequel. I mean, the difference between reading the Bible as a textbook and reading it with a literary approach is like trying to sit down and watch five minutes of a Marvel movie and wonder why you're not engaged. Even if stuff is blowing up on screen, you've missed out on the whole heart of what Marvel has spent 10 plus years crafting. This is what takes place in the Bible, yet on a completely different scale. It's in the crafting of the Bible, in its poems and its images, its interconnected themes, its deep character arcs, most particularly the character arc of God himself, but also of us as his image bearers, that's unfolded with the greatest craft of any story ever told. This is how the Bible was meant to be read. And to recover such a reading, like any great masterpiece, we're going to need to slow down, to ponder words, phrases, and images, to explore the canon backwards and forwards, to discover the riches accessible to anyone who will take the time to simply read slowly and carefully the words God has chosen to reveal himself in. The reward will be immense, but patience will be required, and we might even have to train our hearts to appreciate the art of how the Bible is communicating with us. So this is the second approach, the literary approach, which leads to our third and final approach, the existential approach. Now, perhaps the existential approach will surprise you, Existentialism, after all, typically reminds me of college philosophy classes when we talk about the absurdism of Sartre or the deconstruction of Derrida. Those are certainly types of existentialism, certain pictures of how you can view humanity. Yet the existentialism I'm talking about here is the willingness by ordinary, everyday people to wrestle with the deepest questions of what it means to be human. The reason existentialism resonates with so many is that the questions have remained surprisingly consistent across the ages, even as technology, economies, and culture changes. Existentialism questions things like, what does it mean to love? Why do humans have to suffer? Where do I look for purpose and meaning in my life? Or even, 
How do I know who I am and what I'm here for? These are the great questions of human existence. And yet, for some reason, many of us seem to have been told that the Bible was not intended for such questions. In fact, our Bibles are not there for questions. They're there to give us answers, primarily about faith. To have faith means you no longer have to ask or wrestle with such questions, since they're all answered there in your Bible if you would just read it for 15 minutes a day. Yet, what I was surprised to discover as I've read different existentialists is that the best existentialism is in fact found in the great Christian tradition. Thinkers like Kierkegaard and Dostoevsky, all the way back to Augustine and St. Paul. Now, this leads to a natural question. Why is it that Kierkegaard, Dostoevsky, St. Augustine, and St. Paul were such key founding figures in the history of existentialism? Well, the answer, I believe, is that questions about existence, what it means to be human, are in fact the very questions we as Christians must ask of Christ, the one who has come as a second Adam to redeem us as image bearers of God. Every question of existence is in fact a Christ question, one in which we are left to choose whether to follow Christ who offers us a way, a truth, and the life, and how to be united to him, or one in which we choose to be left to love ourselves. You've probably heard before or were told when doing your quiet times to look for Christ on every page of scripture, normally for the ways that a passage might prophesy about Jesus or offer us some sort of type. I think that's only the half of it. Christ is in fact on every page of scripture because every page wrestles deeply with the very questions of what it means to exist, to be human. And if we are to find any direction, we must not shy away from such existential questions, but we must bring them with us humbly to the word of God and invite him to speak to us through Christ. These are the questions Jesus alone is capable of responding to. This is how the word begins to burn for us, when we bring the deepest burning questions of our heart and find in these three approaches, the sociocultural, the literary, and the existential, that God always has been speaking powerfully, and he wants to speak powerfully to us today, if only we have the courage to listen and perhaps even be questioned ourselves by his word. Now, if you've made it this far in the podcast, I hope you're at least intrigued. The plan of this podcast is to embark on a number of studies, where armed with these three approaches, we return to the Word and encounter God again. I've tried to highlight so far why I believe we were sold a false script, that in a post-enlightenment, scientific method world, we should simply read our Bible 15 minutes a day for answers. I want to try my best to help free you from that script. It was never enough and never what the Bible was intended to be. It has endangered your faith long enough. Yet freed from that script, I want to invite you to return to the Word, to not give up on your Bible, but to find a guide like this podcast and study, or really any guide that can help take you back into the Bible and discover that God still wants to speak to you today.
I want to therefore end this first podcast with an exercise of just such an encounter with the burning word by briefly taking you to three texts in the Bible that inspired me to come up with this image of the burning word to set the course for our study. So the first text is going to come in Exodus 3. This is the infamous, beloved text where Moses is going to encounter the burning bush. So I'm going to read you the text from Exodus 3, verses 1 to 4. It says this, Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the far side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. So Moses thought, I will go over and see this strange sight, why the bush did not burn up. When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, Here I am. You've probably heard this text before. Moses is doing the farthest thing from the extraordinary. He's tending his father-in-law's flock. He's at work. He's done this a thousand times, the same old routine, day in and day out. He's quite literally just walking through the wilderness. I couldn't imagine anything more mundane. Yet suddenly, he stumbles across Horeb, the mountain of God, and as he's walking, he sees this bush that is on fire, Yet strangely, though it is ablaze, the flames do not consume it. It is a sign, an extraordinary sign of God in the midst of ordinary, everyday existence. And Moses sees it. He notices it. It stands out to him. Interestingly, we're told when he sees it that Moses is going to have this internal thought process to himself in verse 3. It says, he thought, I will go over and see this strange sight, why the bush does not burn up. Now imagine with me for just a second, if you or I had seen this sign, a bush on fire that did not burn up. Would you and I have actually investigated it further? In fact, imagine if Moses had not investigated, if he had simply walked on by, brushing the dirt off his hands, saying, I really don't have time for this kind of strangeness. My life is full enough. Would we have walked by? Or maybe, better yet, would we have had eyes to even see it in the first place? It is when Moses turns that God chooses to speak. As if he was waiting on Moses to commit before he offered himself an encounter. What I love about this burning bush, and why I think it captures the essence of God's word, is that when we see the sign in all its strangeness and wonder, it's us who must turn and look further before God reveals himself. Yet precisely when we turn, the burning bush tells us that God shows up. He offers himself an encounter. This exchange is going to find God revealing to Moses his very name. Yahweh, I am who I am. That certainly is the power of the burning word, to reveal God. Yet, even further, in this encounter, God is going to reveal to Moses who Moses himself is. He'll say, you will be my right hand 
Moses. You are the leader of my people. Moses, you are the one who is about to enact my redemption. Where Moses thought he was weak, God made him strong. Where Moses thought he couldn't speak, God offered him support. When Moses thought he was a washed-up, has-been prince, God reveals that Moses has been chosen to lead his people into the promised land. This is what we so desperately need. We need to turn and find an encounter with the very revelation of God, the essence of who God truly is. Yet we also need, in that revelation, to discover who we truly are, who we are called to be. This is the first image that captures the heart of what God's word can be for us if we would have the courage to turn and to see it. Our second image and second text comes to us in the book of Jeremiah. Now, even I will admit, Jeremiah is not an easy read. It's sort of this mixed bag of strange text, sometimes giving us Jeremiah's prophecies, sometimes offering oracles against other nations, and then unexpectedly turning to journal entries of Jeremiah himself as he invites us into his innermost prayers with God. It's precisely one of these journal entries in Jeremiah 20 that's fascinated me when it's come to the Bible. In the previous chapter, Jeremiah 19, Jeremiah had pulled off one of the most impressive feats of his career as a prophet. He had exquisitely crafted a parable about God as the great potter, only then to gather all of the leaders of the city of Jerusalem, take them with him on a journey to the valley of garbage waste, and there eloquently lift up an earthen vessel of clay, only to dramatically smash it on the ground. This, Jeremiah proclaimed, is what God must do to you because of the abominations you have practiced here on this site. Apparently, children had been sacrificed to other gods in this very valley of garbage heap. One can almost imagine Jeremiah slightly triumphant in this moment. I mean, this was the word of God which he had proclaimed, and he crushed it. Maybe Jeremiah even thought to himself, Man, all those leaders, they're finally going to get it. They're finally going to respond to the power of the poetic imagery with which I've been preaching. Yet the very next day, we're told that Peshur, the chief priest over the temple, would order Jeremiah to be locked up in the stocks, right there in front of the entrance to the temple. And for the entire day, people were invited to heap scorn on him as they passed him by. They probably threw old bits of trash at him. They spit on him. And certainly they sneered at Jeremiah as they saw him locked up in chains. I mean, this was going from the heights of success to one of the lowest experiences of contempt Jeremiah would receive in his career. So there, at the very bottom, we get this journal entry, this prayer that Jeremiah has with God. And it's raw and it's personal, but man, I find it to be powerful. This is Jeremiah 20, verses 7 to 9. You deceived me, Lord, and I was deceived. You overpowered me and prevailed. I am ridiculed all day long. Everyone mocks me. Whenever I speak, I cry out, proclaiming violence and destruction. So the word of the Lord has brought me insult and reproach all day long. But if I say, I will not mention his word or speak any more in his name, his word is in my heart like a fire, 
a fire shut up in my bones. I am weary of holding it in. Indeed, I cannot. Now, if Moses was required to stop and turn, then Jeremiah shows us what it's like to be tried and tested by the burning word. I mean, he's quite literally pressed into service. That's his complaint. He feels like he was offered this glorious vision by God of what it would be like to be his servant and prophet. And yet instead of a reward, he finds he's ridiculed and mocked all day long. I think the truth here is that the burning word does not simply confirm all we desire. It isn't an easy word. Instead, it's like a fire that burns up the parts of us we'd rather not face. It can sear us with its intensity and heat, what it requires of us. It will challenge and test us with the burden of its call. Yet, it's precisely here that Jeremiah notes, try as he might to avoid it, to ignore it. The word of God is like a fire burning in his heart. If you've ever tried to walk away from the Bible, you've probably sensed this could be what you might miss out on. You need that intensity. You need the heat of the living God to burn like a conscience to your soul. And when you encounter God here in the word, you won't be able to contain it. You'll find yourself speaking with new insight, living with new faith, seeing with new clarity. This is the power, the conviction of the burning word as it sears against your heart. Okay, so one final image. This one comes from Luke 24. Two disciples are walking on the road to Emmaus. And much like many today, they had lost hope. The Christ they once knew had been crucified and all of the talks and all the dreams that had stirred faith in their hearts seemed to die with him. This man approaches them, intrigued by their loss of faith. They try to explain it to him. Did he not know? Jesus the Nazarene was dead. All the hopes they once had had died with him. Yet, unexpectedly, this man replies, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all the prophets had spoken. Was it not necessary that the Messiah should suffer these things and enter into his glory? We're then told that beginning with Moses, And all the prophets, this man would interpret to them all the scriptures and things concerning himself. As they drew close to the village of Emmaus, they urged this man to stay with them, but he declined. They persisted, and finally he agreed to sit down at a table with them. As he broke the bread, their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, though he vanished from their sight this final verse in Luke 24, 32, that has stuck with me as I've been pondering what it means to approach the burning word. The disciples will proclaim, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? This is what we've been missing, to encounter Christ in the opening of the word. What else could burn in our hearts than the resurrection of our very hope? What could pierce the malaise of this secular culture more than a return to the word that shows us the Christ? Is it possible that this is precisely what you've been missing in your faith? 
Like Moses, you've been walking around lost in the wilderness of a culture telling you you should just fend for yourself and take care of your own desires. And what you've needed is a sign, this burning bush that is not yet consumed, that will force you to turn so that there, in the burning word, you can be offered a revelation of God and a revelation of yourself. Or maybe like Jeremiah, you've been struggling under the burden of this calling you didn't even want. You've been trying to find a way out, and yet you can't deny that you've tasted something in your faith. You need a word that burns deep in your chest, one that tries you and tests you, a word you can hold on to even in the midst of humiliation, suffering, and shame. You feel the burning word, and now it's time to return to it. Or maybe finally, you, like those disciples, have lost your hope. You're walking a road you don't know where to, and all of the vision, all of the energy, the liveliness you once had is gone from the faith you once knew. What if, in the opening of the scriptures, Christ could speak to you again? could burn like a fire in your heart, could show you himself as the key to your own existence, and could resurrect your hope again. This is the power of the burning word. This is the invitation. Return to the word and encounter God again. Join me in our next episode as we embark on our first study a study of the book of Job, where we ask, where is God in my suffering? This has been John Perrine with The Burning Word, and until next time, grace and peace.